Hello and welcome to Killing Time, a podcast about conflicts and battles that have bent the arc of history. I'm your host, Chip Wagar. Thanks for joining me for this military history podcast series. And today we're going to be um, discussing a huge battle, actually, uh, a World War II battle, uh, the Battle of France, which took place in May and June 1940. Now, we often consider the counterfactual in our podcast series. In other words, what would have happened if the outcome of a battle or campaign had been the opposite of what happened in real life? Usually, though, we think about this at the end of our broadcasts. But today I'm going to start with it. And I'm going to start with it to explain why I am doing this particular campaign, the Battle of France, that took place in May and June 1940. After all, this podcast series is meant to explore battles that changed the course of history, and this particular battle did not change the ultimate outcome of World War II. The victor, Nazi Germany, eventually lost the war. But I'd like you to imagine, for a moment, that France and Britain, along with their allies, Belgium, the Netherlands, and Poland, had won the war in the early summer of 1940. What would the world be like today? Let's start with the Holocaust. The mass killing of Jews began with the invasion of the USSR in 1941, a year after the Battle of France. Had France defeated Germany, about six million Jews and another five million other victims, Roma, communists, homosexuals, Poles, Soviet prisoners of war, and their descendants, would still be alive today. It's estimated that of the nine million Jews living in Europe, for example, at the start of the war, two-thirds of them were murdered by the Nazi regime between 1941 and 1945. Later Nazi invasions and conquests of Yugoslavia, Greece, and of course Russia, not to mention four years of brutal occupation of Norway, Denmark, France, Belgium, the Netherlands, the Czech Republic, Slovakia, and Poland would never have happened. And deaths. We must remember that World War II, in terms of deaths, is the greatest human catastrophe ever, with over 2% of the world population killed. In Europe, the combined Axis and Allied losses until 1941 were relatively small, relatively. From 1941 to 1945, military casualties alone, just military, were about 3 million a year. 
about 15 million total deaths. Civilian casualties from the war, disease, persecution, mass murder, bombing of cities, were even higher. Soviet Russian civilian and military casualties alone, all after 1940, were 25 million. You get the idea. And we're not even touching on the destruction. Cities bombed and reduced to rubble, rail, electrical grid, water, everything blown to pieces. Imagine if in the late spring of 1940, after a German invasion of France, the offensive had ground to a halt and a counteroffensive by the Allies had crushed large formations of the Wehrmacht, leading to an invasion of Germany, the collapse of the Nazi regime, and a peace treaty by the end of the summer. The United States would never have been involved in the European war, in any event. Perhaps with Japan, but perhaps not. Of the tens of millions of people killed in the European part of the war, not only did they die, but all of the children and descendants they would have had were eliminated too. A lot was at stake in the spring of 1940, and this counterfactual scenario is not far-fetched at all. Of all the battles that should have been lost by the winner in this podcast series, this may be, perhaps, the greatest and, in, and, and most improbable of them all. Much like Tannenberg the very first battle in our podcast series, the loss of this campaign by Britain and France doomed the continent to the most utter destruction the world has ever seen. Military scholarship in recent times, using new sources of fact and information, clearly show that France alone in 1940 should have been able to defeat Nazi Germany, and that many propaganda myths created not just by the Nazis, but by the defeated British and later other Allied commentators to explain the defeat were just that, myths. The explanation for the defeat of France and her allies has many sources and roots, but lack of manpower and equipment is not one of them. As we will see, the German army of 1940 was not, in relative terms, the German army of 1914. That army may have been one of the greatest armies of all time in terms of manpower, equipment, and leadership. That army could very well have defeated France and almost did. In 1940, the situation was reversed. The French army was by every measure except its highest strategic leadership, the superior military force, and not by a little bit. With the addition of a small but highly trained, equipped British expeditionary force and a tough Belgian army, France had little to fear from the Wehrmacht of 1940. In every way, the war that began on September 1st, 1939, was a criminal gamble 
of a delusional dictator whose recklessness would eventually doom his country to annihilation, but only after six years of fighting, bombing, and genocidal savagery on a scale not seen perhaps since the Mongol invasion of the 13th century, perhaps not even then. Indeed, the battle and fall of France in 1940 was an international catastrophe that changed the course of human history for all time. As always, we begin by placing the battle in the context of the war in which it took place, in this case, the Second World War. The cause and origins of the First World War were varied and complex, and still vex historians to this day. The cause and origin of the Second World War are not. The defeat of Germany and her allies in 1918 was followed by a harsh victor's peace bearing no real resemblance to the 14 points advanced by U.S. President Woodrow Wilson in the closing days of the war that Germany had thought it was accepting, in principle, when it asked for an armistice after internal revolutions overthrew the German monarchy and the military junta that had effectively ruled the country for most of the war. Instead, a vengeful, humiliating, and short-sighted treaty was forced on the new Weimar Republic and the successor states of the old Austro-Hungarian and Ottoman empires by France and Britain, who helped themselves to territory and colonial possessions of the defeated. Italy and the United States, two of the other victorious powers, were left embittered as well. Italy cheated of further territory it had been promised by France, Britain, and Russia during the war that had induced Italy to enter the war, nursed resentments that eventually led it to be an ally of Germany in the next. Russia, now the Soviet Union, was excluded from the conference altogether. The United States, its ideals and principles rejected, all but the League of Nations, retreated into isolationism, rejected membership in the League, and, when the war broke out, declined to become involved at all until Nazi Germany declared war on the United States after Pearl Harbor. Much as poverty, ignorance, and humiliation breed crime and slums, the same conditions engendered a breeding ground of radical politics in Weimar Germany in the interwar years. Germany had a new chancellor almost every single year between 1919 and 1933. The Communist Party and right-wing nationalist parties paralyzed effective government of centrists and allowed the Nazi Party to grow steadily, particularly in the late 1920s and early 1930s. The Wall Street crash in the United States in 1929 and the Depression that followed hit Germany very hard. The messianic, radical doctrines of the Nazi leader, Adolf Hitler, reached their peak in 1932 and 1933. When he was appointed Chancellor in January 1933, he and the Nazi party established a dictatorship in a matter of months and began that country's long nightmare, and that of Europe as well. The peculiar and 
dangerous ambitions of the dictator for himself and Germany, as well gradually came to dominate the continent in the late 1930s. As German industry and idle manpower was slowly, secretly bent toward creating a new military machine in violation of the hated Versailles Treaty, but yet, as we shall see, was, even in 1940, no match for that of France, except in one respect, the qualities of its generals. Now we think of Germany today, and rightly so, as a technological and economic powerhouse. Today, in the European Union of the early 21st century, despite its relatively small size compared to the United States, Russia, India, or China, for example, Germany ranks first by almost every measure. But in post-World War I Europe, Germany had never recovered its economic strength, sapped by massive post-war indemnity payments to the Allies, political instability, labor union strikes, ruinous inflation, and any number of other causes. The Nazi regime stabilized the German economy, and by 1938, its GDP was once again the largest in Europe. But in the meantime, French investment in its military defense, including the virtually impregnable Maginot Line, its armored tanks and aircraft, eclipsed the crash program begun by the Nazi regime only in 1935. Finally, Germany had lost the last war it had fought due to, due in large part, from being blockaded and isolated from the world by France and Britain. Starved of money, starved of resources, starved of even sufficient food by the end of the war, Germany was collapsing from within almost as fast as it was collapsing on the battlefields of France by 1918. Germany had only been able to mount two real offensives in the West during the First World War, both of which had ground to a halt in bloody futility. One in 1914, the so-called von Schlieffen Plan, and the other, a last-ditch attempt in the summer of 1918. The balance of power was even less favorable in 1939 than it had been in 1914. In this podcast, I'll rely a great deal on Carl Frieser's brilliant book, The Blitzkrieg Legend, published by the Naval Institute Press in 2005. This is, in my opinion, a seminal, impeccably researched narrative of the myths surrounding the Battle of France. It's perhaps today the best and most compelling account of this campaign in print. And I'd like to start off by uh, giving you a quote uh, uh, that Freezer reproduces in his book um, from Paul Schmidt, who was Adolf Hitler's chief interpreter, who wrote an account of his experiences after the war. Schmidt was present at and described the scene in the Chancellery 
when he finished translating the British declaration of war on September 3rd and the folly of Hitler's decision to attack Poland. And I'm going to quote. After I finished, there was total silence. Hitler sat there as if petrified and stared straight ahead. He was not stunned, as he maintained later, and he did not rant and rave either, as others claimed they knew. He sat in his seat, quietly and motionless. After a while, which seemed like an eternity to me, he turned to Ribbentrop, who kept standing at the window as if frozen. What now? Hitler asked his foreign minister, with a furious gaze in his eyes, as if he wanted to indicate that Ribbentrop had misinformed him about the reaction of the British. Softly, Ribbentrop replied, I assume that shortly the French will give us the same ultimatum. Goering turned to me and said, If we lose this war, may heaven have mercy on us. Hitler and his entourage had reason to be despondent at that moment. The dictator had miscalculated and was now facing two military powers greater than his own, whose economic, military, and maritime weight would most certainly eventually crush Germany. A long blockade and economic strangulation loomed, with little hope that Germany's inferior military strength could ever overcome. Germany's general staff and military establishment in general viewed with contempt the dictator's pretensions, particularly when it came to his self-induced belief that his military instincts trumped their own judgments. Incredulous and deeply skeptical of the ability of the Nazi dictator to attack and defeat Poland without involving Germany in a war with France and Britain, Poland's allies, nonetheless, in the moment of truth, they lacked the nerve to mount a military coup to remove him. And I'm going to quote a German historian now, Golo Mann, uh, who describes the mood among the French, uh, excuse me, among the German general staff. And I quote, Although the Germans started the war, they were not enthusiastic, neither the civilians nor the soldiers, least of all the generals. Never has a general staff been so little to blame for a war as the German general staff for the Second World War. And never has it approached its task with so much distaste. Never have the politicians been so firmly in the saddle with the army reduced to the role of the horse. The dictatorship had made the war. It was its war. When their doubts turned into reality, and into the reality they most feared, on September 3, 1939, the general's views of him ranged from disgust to loathing to outrage. Calculating the realities, the German generals could see no way that Germany could now escape a second cataclysmic defeat, and who knew what would follow. I should mention that in the years to follow, there would be 16 attempts to assassinate Adolf Hitler, culminating in the most famous one in 1944, led by Klaus von Stauffenberg. 
Many were attempted by groups within the German officer corps and general staff. In any event, after the defeat and occupation of Poland and in late September 1939, Hitler's announcement to his assembled military chiefs on September 27 that he intended to launch an all-out offensive against France, Britain, Belgium, and the Netherlands as, quote, unalterable, and at the, quote, best and soonest moment, they were stunned. Von Brausich considered such a campaign as, quote, insanity. General von Lieb, who would go on to be commander of one of the three army groups, also considered an, it an, quote, insane attack. And General von Reichenau called it, quote, just about criminal, according to Frieser's research. So let's see why the German general staff and high-ranking officers' views of the war in general and the prospect of war with France and Britain in particular, diverged so dramatically, not only from the dictator's views in 1939 and 40, but also from the generally accepted explanation for the debacle of May-June 1940 that has so long been accepted as conventional truth in the West, including the United States. The generally accepted view goes something like this. In the late 1930s, as the Nazi regime secretly built up a vast army and air force in violation of the Versailles Peace Treaty, France and Britain slept and did nothing, relying on old, outdated equipment in small numbers. This is particularly thought to be so in respect to the German Air Force, the Luftwaffe, and German tanks or armor, the Panzers. France and Britain were woefully equipped to confront the new modern blitzkrieg force Germany assembled when war suddenly broke out in 1939. Far behind at the outset of the war, the British and French never caught up with Germany and were overwhelmed by a steel avalanche that ran around the ludicrous Maginot Line. Germany's Luftwaffe ruled the skies, shooting the inferior French and British pilots out of the sky and bombing the French and British to oblivion. As a direct result of the unpreparedness of the Allies, they were literally blown off the map by the Germans. As a consequence, France was occupied and Britain spent the rest of the war barely holding on until the United States came to the rescue. This is very far from the truth. And that is one of the most important things I hope by this podcast to demonstrate. And Freezer's book does an immensely thorough and detailed job of debunking this myth as well. But I'll just give you uh, the highlights here. Germany's military strength was quite inferior to France alone on May 10, 1940, let alone the combined strength of France Britain, Belgium, and Holland. Frieser's meticulous research, culminating in his 2005 book, reveals the extent of German inferiority in every respect, both in quantity and quality. Here are just a few of the facts that disprove the propaganda that arose after the debacle. In terms of sheer numbers of men in arms, Germany mobilized about 4.2 million men but only about 3 million were available for this campaign. The remainder 
uh, were on occupation duty in Poland, Denmark, and Norway. France, by contrast, mobilized a total of 6.1 million men, of which two and a quarter million alone were arrayed on the northeast front outside the Maginot Line. Britain mobilized about 500,000, the Netherlands another 400,000, and Belgium 650,000 men. So in total, Germany had 3 million men to about 4 million allied in the campaign. 135 German divisions faced a total of about 151 allied. No manpower superiority here. In artillery, Freezer points out, the Western powers were about twice as strong. France alone had some 10,700 artillery pieces to Germany's 7,378. In all, the Allies disposed of nearly 14,000 artillery pieces. No German superiority here either. In tanks, the, number, the numbers were indeed closer, but not really, when one studies the quality of German versus Allied equipment. Nonetheless, including captured Czech tanks, of which there were many, by the way, Germany had a total strength of 2,439 to 3,254 3, for France alone. Britain had another 310 tanks deployed in France on May 10th and was in the process of shipping another 330 combat vehicles to France when the attack began. The Netherlands and Belgium had another 310. So, once again, the Allies had over 4,000 tanks to Germany's 2,400 or so. No superiority here either, but that doesn't even tell the story. German tanks were, in general, far inferior to those of the French and British, in particular, and roughly comparable to the Belgian and Dutch tanks. The German panzers designed and produced in the second half of World War II were, indeed, formidable fighting machines. I'm talking about the famous Panzer Mark Vs and the King Tiger, or Mark Vs. But these were not even on the drawing board in 1940. The best German tank was the Mark IV, but Germany had only 278 of these available. Furthermore, the short 7.5-centimeter barrel cannon of the Panzer IV was inaccurate, had a muzzle velocity of only 385 meters per second, and a very short range. Its armament thickness was 30 millimeters. Most French tanks had an armament of 40 millimeters thickness and up to 60 millimeters in the French Charbet and 80 millimeters in the British Matilda tanks. The Panzer I had a thickness of only 13 millimeters and the Panzer II of 14 and a half. French tanks had far greater firepower and protection and their higher quality tanks greatly outnumbered the German Panzer III's and IV's. In fact, the Panzer I had no cannon at all, simply two machine guns. The Panzer II had a cannon of only 20 millimeters and the Panzer III of only 37. By contrast, the French Renault, 
a middling tank in in the arsenal, of which the French had 900, had a 37-millimeter cannon with 45-millimeter armament. France also had 700 Hotchkiss 35-39s with similar cannon and armament. 700. The heavier French tanks, the Saumouet, of which they had 300, and the dreaded monster, the Charbet, of which they had 274, had a powerful 47-millimeter cannon with 55-millimeter and 60-millimeter armament. The British Matilda had a 40-millimeter cannon with a muzzle velocity of 800 meters per second. What this all meant, there's a lot of statistics there to digest, but what this all meant was that even the best German Panzer, the Mark IV, had to get in close due to its short cannon and low muzzle velocity, exposing its greatly inferior armor to the better Allied tanks. The Mark III was even more vulnerable, and the Mark I and II uh, could simply not be used as battle tanks at all against the Allied tanks. Lastly, the air arm was hardly better. The justly famous German ME-109 fighter was absolutely one of the best fighter aircraft at the outset of the war, but not superior to the British Hurricane or Spitfire, uh, nor the French uh, De Watine 520 or Curtis Hawks purchased from the United States. The French were thought then, and still to this day, to have at that time the world's most advanced bombers in the world. Nor were numbers against the Allies. France and Britain marshaled some 4,469 bombers and fighters against the German Reich's 3,578. Nor were the quality of German pilots superior at all. The Luftwaffe had been hastily organized only a few years before the outbreak of the war. Training and experience, as compared to the French and British, was inferior. As Freezer pointed out in his book, in the three and a half months before September 1st, 1939, the outbreak of the war, 281 Luftwaffe personnel died in aircraft accidents, while 287 were seriously injured. Another telling statistic. While France lost some 892 aircraft in the Battle of France, only a third were lost in aerial combat. Meanwhile, French pilots shot down 733 German aircraft. Similarly, Britain's Royal Air Force lost 1,029 aircraft, but the Luftwaffe lost some 1,559 aircraft during the campaign, with another 323 damaged. So how in the world could the Allies have lost this campaign? The answer, as is so often the case in the battles covered by this podcast series, lies not in the numbers, but in a combination of brilliant generalship and the desperation of Germany's catastrophic strategic situation brought about by the Nazi dictator himself. In fact, it's worth saying at this point, numbers, or the lack of numbers, is a recurring theme in this podcast. Uh, while 
Of course, overwhelming numbers can be decisive in military history. Numbers are generally overrated by non-military observers as a decisive factor in the outcome of battles and campaigns. Many times, the force with less numbers is victorious if they can make for it, make up for it in other ways. And, and that's what's going to happen here as well. Yet while contemplating the dire situation that existed in the fall of 1939 and winter of 1940, Germany's general staff was at a loss. No matter how much they thought about it, discussed it, war-gamed it, at first they could see no chance of victory, and Germany had to have victory. A stalemate like the last war would ultimately spell defeat, since France and Britain, as undisputed masters of the sea, would sit back and simply wait for the weak German economy to collapse again, ending the war with another German defeat. In fact, this was essentially the Allied war plan. Now let's pause here for a moment to understand the Anglo-French strategy, because, as we'll see, for the operation the Germans will eventually conceive, it'll require the unwitting cooperation of the Allies. The Anglo-French strategy was really the French strategy because, as between the two, France would supply most of the ground force, at least at first, and supreme command over the two armies would rest with the French, under General Maurice Gamelin. To understand the thinking of the French general and the French high command, we have to understand what France had experienced in the First World War. Two things, really. One was the extreme bloodshed and loss of life endured by France in that war. France had suffered about 1.7 million deaths in a country which in 1914 and 1918 had a population of just under 40 million. That's about 4.25% of its population. To put that in perspective, that would be the equivalent today in the United States of losing 12,750,000 people in a war. Or to put it in even further perspective, the population of the entire state of Pennsylvania or Illinois. Even more than the sheer numbers of dead was the lasting psychological shock the war had left on the French. By 1918, France had called up 8,317,000 men, about one in five of the population, or about four in ten of their men. France had called up men to the age of 45. In addition to the dead, France had suffered another three million casualties, maimed, wounded, crippled, and after four years of shelling, machine gunning, and living in trenches, psychologically devastated. No country had sacrificed more except Russia. The United States, by contrast, lost about 117,000 men, 
and only fought in significant numbers in the last nine months of the war. There simply could not be another bloodletting in this Second World War from the French point of view. The second significant point taken by the French was the presumptive superiority of the defensive over the offensive. Like most of the great powers in Europe in the opening months of the First World War, the French High Command had been indoctrinated in the supreme importance of aggressive all-out attack as the key to quick and decisive victory. The so-called lightning campaigns of the mid-19th century by the genius von Molke, who we covered in an earlier podcast in this series, served as a shining example to the importance of quick mobilization and striking hard and decisively, overwhelming the enemy with concentration of irresistible force at the crucial point of attack. France believed in it. Germany believed in it. Austria believed in it. And all these countries sustained unimaginable casualties when their armies attacked in waves against machine guns and artillery in a new age of industrial-scale warfare. In four weeks of fighting at the outset of the war, France lost 329,000 casualties and achieved nothing of significance in terms of territory or strategic value. France was bled white in the opening weeks of a four-year war and barely hung on the rest of the way, scraping the bottom of the barrel, as we've seen, to sustain itself against superior German numbers for four long years. They would not make that mistake again. Hence, the Maginot Line, and a commitment to husband her resources against what the French High Command was sure would be another German invasion. The third vital component in the French, and therefore the Allied plan, was their overwhelming superiority at sea. We've already noted this, and I will not belabor it any more, but to put it plainly, France and Britain had the luxury of sitting back and slowly strangling Germany to death if it chose the defensive as well. This advantage fit well with the psychological mindset of the French and the British anyway. And by the way, while the British were definitely the junior partner in this alliance when it came to land forces, the thinking there was much the same as in France. The British had sustained not equal, but still mind-boggling casualties in the First World War as well, and were just as reluctant to engage in the kind of meat-grinding war of attrition their generals had commanded in the last war. The French view suited the British generals as well. Many military strategists, in hindsight, criticized the French for not having attacked Germany in the fall of 1939, while most of the German army was engaged in the fighting in Poland. German generals at the time and later confirmed that German land forces had only a tissue-paper-thin reserve along the Franco-German border protecting the Rhine and the bulk of the German industrial zones located there. Had they attacked the so-called West Wall of flimsy defensive fortifications, the German army could only have held out for a couple of weeks. Yet this was precisely the kind of thinking that had become completely alien to the French general staff, and of course, they did not have the benefit of hindsight. 
or a precise knowledge of the disposition and strength of German forces in the West. In any event, the German army did not get bogged down in Poland in any kind of a long campaign that would have tempted the French. The Polish army was annihilated in two weeks. Warsaw was placed under siege within the first week of the war. Nonetheless, the French were virtually certain that an attack would have to come from the Germans at some point after their defeat and occupation of Poland. The only question was where and when. The Maginot Line, constructed in the 1930s, was considered a virtually impregnable barrier to land invasion across the Rhine from Germany, and indeed, it would actually never be breached. The defensive construction has been ridiculed ever since France's defeat, but in truth, it was quite a marvel of engineering and defensive power. It took the place of the trenches of the First World War that had protected France from Germany for four years. Only this system was even more powerful. Covered with earth, underground pillboxes of machine guns, supplemented by turrets of powerful artillery, were interconnected with an underground railway, munitions depots, barracks, kitchens, command posts, and the like. Behind the wall were reserves of the French army to deal with any attempt at a localized breakthrough. It was virtually impenetrable. That being the case, the French reasoned that the Germans would only be left with the same option they had been given in the First World War, to attack through Luxembourg and Belgium the old von Schlieffen plan that had failed Germany in that war and would be even more unlikely to succeed this time. Instead of concentrating its army evenly along its frontier with Germany and Belgium, as it had in the First World War, and launching offensives into the Rhine area, France would concentrate the bulk of its army on the Franco-Belgian frontier ready to speed into Belgium the moment the Germans did so first. The British, located on the left flank next to the English Channel, would also race forward and meet the German army in Belgium. This was the so-called Dial Plan, that's D-Y-L-E, and it's pronounced in French Deal, but we'll call it the Dial Plan. And it was named for the River Dial in Belgium, that the Allied armies uh, would occupy uh, when they entered into Belgium. The combined might of the Anglo-French armies would easily repulse any German force they could assemble, and the war might be decided right then and there. If not, they could always just dig in and wait. The French strategy was so unassailably simple and logical that nobody dreamed of questioning it. The strategic high ground held by the French and British was so daunting that it drove Germany's high command to despair when Hitler ordered them to prepare to attack in the fall of 1939 and confounded them in the winter of 1939 and 40, the period of the so-called phony war, which in truth would have been a war France and Britain would have won in time with minimal bloodshed. On January 4th, on January 10, 1940, a German military aircraft was downed over Belgium, which contained the war plans developed thus far by 
Franz Halder, who was chief of the German general staff, and which generally resembled the Schlieffen plan the French had predicted. These plans, these captured plans, confirmed in the minds of the French exactly what the Germans were going to do. And at first the French were right. Adolf Hitler himself rejected plans laid before him by Halder and the general staff that he felt were unimaginative and lacked any surprise or creativity. Field Marshal Keitel remarked in his memoirs after the war that when presented with the earliest plans for the invasion by Halder, he remarked dismissively, quote, This is just the old Schlieffen plan, with the strong right flank along the Atlantic coast. You won't get away with an operation like that twice running. On another occasion, after listening to another variation, Hitler rejected it again as, quote, the same old Schlieffen hat. Yet for quite some time, that was the best the general staff could do with what they had, even though it was unlikely to produce the decisive victory that the Germans had to have or lose the war. Instead, the early plans accepted the fact that the moment Belgium's neutrality was violated, the French and British would not be fooled like they were in 1914, when the scale and intent of the German plan had not been immediately apparent or grasped by the Allies. Only by the most extreme efforts and improvisation had the French commander, Joseph Joffre, held the Germans at the Marne. This time, the Germans knew that the Anglo-French army would lunge into Belgium and meet them there head-on. Halder hoped that the army could somehow outfight the Allies and push them back to the Somme, but even if they did, this would not result in a massive envelopment or catastrophic defeat that would end the war. It would be a brawl, a slugfest, and the Germans were far weaker and less able to sustain a long conflict than their enemies. It was easy for Hitler to reject these early ideas, but for the longest time there was no viable alternative. In the Battle of Cannae in 216 BC, the Carthaginian army led by Hannibal utterly annihilated a much superior Roman army under Gaius Varro in a double envelopment that ever since has been regarded as a classic tactical maneuver. In its most simple form, Hannibal anticipated the aggressive tactics of the Roman general, who plunged forward into the center of the Carthaginian army arrayed against him. Hannibal directed his center to retreat, drawing the Romans deeper and deeper into the trap that he had sprung at the decisive moment when his flank forces on either side suddenly closed in on the flanks 
and rear of the Roman army, enveloping it on either side. Panic ensued within the Roman ranks, with a breakdown of command and control. Ultimately, somewhere between 50 and 75,000 Roman soldiers were slaughtered at a cost of only about 5,000 Carthaginians. The key point about the Battle of Cannae was that the Roman general was himself a vital contributor to the result. Had he simply maintained his control, had he not plunged in, at worst there might have been a stalemate. The battle reverberated down through history in military minds. The idea of envelopment and annihilation, the decisive victory that knocks an opponent out of the war, has always been the cherished goal of any military leader. Von Molke strained might and main to achieve an envelopment and annihilation of the Austrian army at Königgratz, and just missed. He succeeded at Sedan in 1870, obliterating an entire French field army and capturing Emperor Napoleon III in the bargain. This kind of annihilating victory was what Hitler was looking for, and for good reason. It was the only kind of victory Germany could settle for in 1940. France and Britain were not Poland. Germany was not going to overwhelm these powers by a head-on blitzkrieg. It would take something more. The Cannae idea, the unwitting, unthinking, heedless conduct of the opponent, was something like a bullfight in Spain, in which the bull's own madness, size, and strength are actually used against him by the matador, leading the bull to its own death. It was Erich von Manstein, who hit upon the idea that was to become one of the greatest military gambles of all time and result in the greatest military disaster or victory, depending on your point of view, in the 20th century. Von Manstein's idea accepted as a given the dial plan or its equivalent, that the best part of the Anglo-French army, arrayed in northern France, would plunge into Belgium at the drop of the German hat. As the plan evolved, the Germans would even egg on the Allies by invading the Netherlands as well, in what would look to the Allies like a gigantic, sweeping redo of the Schlieffen Plan on an even larger scale than in 1914. But it would be a ruse. The main German thrust would come from perhaps the most unlikely quarter on the front, the Ardennes Forest. Now, we always discuss topography here uh, in these podcasts because it's so important to the outcome of a military battle or campaign, and this one is no different. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about the Ardennes Forest, which is a relatively large area sprawling over Luxembourg, Belgium, Germany, and France. It's comprised in varying degrees and in various places of dense forests, rolling hills and ridges, often very rough terrain, and is crossed by the Moselle and Meuse rivers. And some of these hills are really small mountains, rising to peaks of 1,500 to 2,000 feet above sea level. Very few good roads pass through this mass, and any offensive would have to be channeled through these few roads and over bridges over rivers, to get through to the open terrain on the other side. Quite rightly, the French felt that 
the vast forested area posed such a barrier to any advance in force anyway through it that the forces arrayed at or near the edge by the French were among their weakest reserves. This would enable the French to concentrate their best troops and equipment to the west of the forest to lunge into Belgium. One of von Manstein's signature characteristics was his unpredictability and capacity for surprise at doing something his opponent least expected. On the opposite side of the forest was the hinge point of the French deployment between the end of the Maginot Line and the bulk of the Franco-British army to the west. Here was the point where von Manstein urged the attack should be. Prophetically, the city on the other side was Sedan, the same city where the French had suffered their disastrous defeat in the Franco-Prussian War of 1870. The second aspect of von Manstein's plan was to marshal virtually the entire panzer forces of the German army into one giant formation at the critical point of attack. Once they were through the forest and over the rivers, the steel juggernaut would punch a hole in the French defenses around Sedan and, if successful, achieve a breakthrough that could be exploited and possibly result in the envelopment of the majority of the French and British forces that, it was hoped and expected, would only realize too late, deep into Belgium, that they had been been tricked and made a mistake. The finishing touches involved the German Air Force, the Luftwaffe. Once again, rather than scattering their squadrons all over the front from Holland to the Maginot Line, most of it would be concentrated in the skies over the Meuse, the Ardennes, and Sedan, at the critical moment when the Panzers would be attempting the breakout. Key would be the dive bombers, the Stukas, who would have to deal with the French armor, such as it was, since the Germans had no illusions about the inferiority of their own equipment. For the Germans, everything had to go just right. Timing, execution, and deception all had to work. If any one piece went wrong, the whole thing would collapse and might result not just in a stalemate, but in a catastrophic defeat that would knock Germany out of the war in the first year, not the fourth year as in 1918. When von Manstein outmaneuvered Halder, whose plans had been rejected several times by now and who jealously guarded his position as chief of staff and access to Hitler, and gained a private audience with the Führer, the dictator was immediately impressed and approving. Halder had no choice but to throw his considerable organizing talents into refining von Manstein's plan, and in time it became the operation's plan for the Wehrmacht's one-shot chance to succeed. The key to the plan was the deception of the Allies as to the point of attack and to throw every resource suddenly, with no warning, at that point with a do-or-die mission to break through. The Ardennes provided excellent cover for the miles and miles of idling German tanks, until on the second night of the invasion, French fighter pilots, flying at night over the forest, noticed headlights of German armored and other combat vehicles motoring over the sparse mountain roads that went on to the horizon of their sight. It was a revolving door into France, 
Paris, and encirclement of the best part of the Allied army. Gamelin pushed the button on the dial plan, and the lunge into Belgium began, and the revolving door let the army out of France at the moment the door was allowing the German panzer and mechanized infantry attack in. In the north, the German Northern Front, or Army Group B, commanded by Fedor von Bach, who you will remember was the star of our show in the Battle of Moscow, one of our earlier podcasts. His army achieved surprising success in the Netherlands. The invasion began on the morning of May 10th. Paratroopers were dropped around the Dutch capital of The Hague and on vital bridges and highways leading to Rotterdam to facilitate the quick advance of the German 18th Army, commanded by General Hans Spanik. Much of the Dutch Air Force was destroyed on the ground by surprise dawn bombing. The Dutch responded by opening dikes that flooded the countryside in roughly concentric rings to instantly create defensive barriers to the invasion. But the terror bombing of Rotterdam on May 14th induced the Army command to recommend surrender to spare the country further destruction. On May 15th, the Netherlands capitulated and was out of the war. The French reacted instantly to the invasion of the Low Countries, activating the Dial Plan and filling Belgium and southwestern Netherlands with the elite infantry and nearly all of their armor, along with the entire British expeditionary force. The French High Command, led by Gamelin from his headquarters at the Chateau Vincennes in Paris, far from the front, failed to realize that the advance of Army Group B was only a feint. Initial reports of German penetration into and through the Ardennes, or the Meuse sector, were largely ignored or minimized during the first 24 to 48 hours, when the long columns of panzers, often at a standstill for hours in huge traffic jams through the woods, were exposed to air attack by France and Britain. Instead, the French high command contented itself with reinforcing the Meuse sector around Sedan with a reserve infantry division, the 77th, on May 11th. The sector was already occupied with the French 55th Infantry Division and the 147th Fortress Infantry Regiment, manning over a 100 concrete pillboxes in a defensive zone about four miles deep. French artillery support was also formidable and far superior to anything the Germans could muster that could flay the approach to Sedan and any army crossing the Meuse by infantry with devastating fire. Yet there were deficiencies in the French position here that would prove their undoing. First was the deficiency in anti-tank artillery or anti-aircraft guns. The Germans would not expose their infantry, much to the French, in the campaign here. Instead, the French would be facing mainly tanks and dive-bombing aircraft on a scale not yet seen in warfare. Also missing were mines, a glaring omission in the face of massed panzer and mechanized infantry that required roads and relatively flat open ground to maneuver. The second deficiency was the quality and quantity of the French infantry guarding this crucial sector. The 55th Infantry Division was graded by the French command itself as a B division, which is why it had been assigned to this sector and not included in the dial plan. 
The 77th was also an inferior reserve division. Further, there was no mobile reserve or armored divisions anywhere near this sector to counterattack should the Germans achieve a breakthrough anywhere along the line. Thirdly, and perhaps most crucially, there was woefully deficient air cover or support in the first days of the Battle of Sedan when it was needed. Instead, Hermann Göring himself assured the Wehrmacht commander, Gerd von Rundstedt, overwhelming Luftwaffe cover and delivered it. The Franco-British air forces concentrating on the dial plan on May 12th and 13th, and much of them far from the Meuse sector, lost control of the skies when it counted, leaving the French on the ground exposed. German inferiority in tank quality was more than compensated for by its overwhelming superiority locally in numbers, in a sector largely devoid of tanks in the first couple of days. German inferiority in artillery was more than compensated for by the Luftwaffe's 300 sorties of dive bombers and 3,940 bomber sorties. German fighter aircraft was also concentrated in this sector, sealing off Allied aircraft. German air superiority on the third and fourth days of the invasion in the crucial point-of-attack area was complete. Strong formations of panzers reached the Meuse River after two days, on May 12th, appearing out of the forest and on the opposite bank of the river, entering that part of Sedan, on their side of the river. Um, Sedan, by the way, straddles the Meuse. They were supported by the Großdeutschland Infantry Regiment, a supersized elite infantry unit that also began crowding in and up around the Meuse riverbank. On May 13th, from dawn to dusk, came Goering's carpet bombing of the French positions opposite the Germans in the most intense aerial bombardment over a period of eight hours that the world had ever seen. As a result of the severe rolling bombardment by the Luftwaffe, French artillery support was broken in a day, and indeed artillery was withdrawn or abandoned by their crews. The French 55th Division The French 55th Division's morale was also shattered under the relentless pounding taken with no sight of their own air force. Gamelin's assumption of a long war of blockade and attrition, much of the French air force was held back in the south and interior to preserve it for later fighting. This was in contrast to the Germans, who, out of a desperate need for a breakthrough, threw everything they had into the fight, especially in and around Sedan. On May 13th, with the French pinned down by aerial attack, the German 1st, 2nd, and 10th Panzer Divisions of the 19th Corps forced three crossings of the Meuse at and near Sedan without waiting for artillery support, rolling slowly far behind in the forest. French pillboxes and entrenched infantry succeeded in repulsing two, or I should say containing two of the three crossings, confining them to their small bridgehead for the time being. But the 1st Panzer Division, led by Lieutenant General Friedrich Kirchner, broke through at Glare, just west of Sedan, and by nightfall had penetrated about five miles deep into the French defensive zone. 
The French position was further aggravated by a panic by parts of the 55th Infantry Division at Bolson, south of Sedan, who abandoned their prepared defensive line at around 7 o'clock in the evening on the belief that the Germans had already bypassed them and were encircling them from the rear. This left a wide gap in the French line there. The 10th Panzer Division arrived in this undefended town 12 hours later on the morning of May 14th, achieving breakthrough. At last, the steel tip of the German spear was recognized by the French high command, but there were few resources in the immediate area to reckon with what was coming out of the Ardennes forest and over the Meuse. The French first army group commander, General Bilot, immediately requested massive air support to be redirected to the Sedan area to stop the flood of German armor and mechanized infantry before it was too late. The bridges over the Meuse had to be destroyed one and all. On May 14th, a massive Allied response was indeed marshaled, but on this day, the Luftwaffe ruled the skies. An estimated 40% of Allied bomber strength was lost in a single day as German ME-109s pounced on anything that appeared in the air. The bridgeheads were not destroyed, nor the bridges, and the tanks kept on coming. Amazingly, Allied forces continued to move more deeply into Belgium as of May 14th. Hitler himself called their mistake, quote, a miracle. Heinz Guderian, commander of the 19th Corps, now sent his 10th Panzer Division south and east toward the rear of the Maginot Line while sending the 1st and 2nd Divisions west along the Somme River that is generally the border or near the border between Belgium and France. They would meet little resistance as they raced toward the English Channel in the days ahead. The 10th Panzer would meet ferocious French counterattacks around Stone, but these were beaten off as well, and the action of the uh, 10th was really just another false maneuver to distract the French command from the sickle cut now being executed by the other two. Here we should pause to consider the psychological impact the Germans' surprise attack through the Ardennes and across the seemingly impregnable Meuse River positions had on the French high command and then the government. On the following day, May 15th, French President Renault telephoned Winston Churchill, who had just become Prime Minister only five days earlier, on the very first day of the invasion. In his memoir, Churchill describes the call vividly, and I'm now going to quote Churchill himself, and I quote, He spoke in English, and evidently under stress. Quote, We've been defeated. As I did not immediately respond, he said again, quote, We're beaten. We have lost the battle. I replied, Surely it can't have happened so soon. But he replied, The front is broken near Sedan. They are pouring through in great numbers with tanks and armored cars. Later in the day, Gamelin informed Edouard Daladier, the defense minister, that the situation was catastrophic. Daladier reportedly shouted into the telephone that he should counterattack, but Gamelin replied, With what? I have no more reserves, confirming that there were no French military units between the Germans and Paris. 
On the afternoon of May 16th, Reynaud addressed the French Parliament with a defiant speech meant to rally French morale temporarily, but he was sick inside. By 5.30 in the evening, Churchill arrived in Paris at the Quai d'Orsay to meet with the French cabinet and military. Again, I'm going to quote Churchill's memoirs, described the scene. Utter dejection was written on every face. In front of Gamelin, on a student's easel, was a map about two yards square. The general talked perhaps five minutes without anyone saying anything. When he stopped, there was a considerable silence. I then asked, Where is the strategic reserve? And breaking into French, Où est la masse de manoeuvre? General Gamelin turned to me, and with a shake of the head and a shrug said, Aucun, which, by the way, means nothing. There was another long pause. Presently I asked General Gamelin when and where he proposed to attack the flanks of the bulge. His reply was, quote, Inferiority of numbers, inferiority of equipment, inferiority of method, and then a hopeless shrug of his soldiers. At another point, describing his own impression after the meeting with the French, quote, I was dumbfounded. What were we to think of the great French army and its highest chiefs? Clearly, Gamelin was a beaten man within a week of the opening of the offensive. Two days later, on May 19th, Gamelin was dismissed as the French commander-in-chief and replaced by the 73-year-old Maxime Vegan. And yet, was the war really lost in just a week? Many people think so. I'm of a different of opinion. There was another chance, and I'm going to describe it to you now. By this point on May 18th, the best part of the French army and the entire British expeditionary force had seen little fighting and was located mainly in Belgium, facing a German army group B that had very little armor or air support since everything had been sacrificed and given to Army Group A. To the west was the sea and the coast of England. To encircle and annihilate this massive force seems inconceivable. The two panzer divisions that raced across the north of France to the English Channel, reaching Abbeville on May 19th, had a remarkable campaign, but by themselves were a tiny force, gassed by their exertions and largely unsupported at first by further formations of infantry. They were like a bright comet that had streaked across the sky, burning anything they touched, uh, because it would take quite some time for German military forces of any size or scale to arrive behind them to truly seal off the French and British armies in Belgium from the rest of the French army to the south. Now, the idea of a massive counterattack from Belgium back into northern France was, of course, contemplated. While Bach's army group closed in around the northern and eastern perimeter, particularly after the surrender of the Netherlands freed additional forces, Bach could do little more than fix and contain the Allies. In the crucial days after the German breakthrough at Sedan, when their following forces were paper-thin on the Franco-Belgian border, in the wake of the Panzer's sickle cut to the sea, Gamelin conceived of a counter-offensive. 
In a matter of two weeks, France had traded places with Germany in her desperation. Yet the despair and panic, the psychological, paralyzed the French command and ate away all confidence in the French political establishment. It's difficult to overstate the psychological impact of the Blitzkrieg by Guderian's panzers on the French. The panic and despair that gripped the French high command naturally spread outward and downward. French officers like Colonel Poncelet, whose artillery crews abandoned their positions near Sedan on May 14th, uh, making a counterattack impossible, committed suicide. The commander of the French First Army, trapped in Belgium alongside the BEF, General Biot, was so hesitant, discouraged, and undecided about what to do when he when visited by British General Ironside, I should say Field Marshal Ironside, that Ironside admitted he lost his temper and grabbed Biot by a button on his tunic before finally managing to get him to agree to a joint offensive. But Biot delegated it to one of his corps commanders, General Altmaier. Freezer describes what happens next as seen through the eyes of French Major Vautrin, an aide to Altmaier, and I'm going to quote here. General Altmaier, who made an exhausted and beaten impression, sat on my cot and wept quietly. He said, we have to see things the way they are, that his troops were finished, that he was ready to take upon himself the consequences of his refusal to carry out the order, and that he would take up his position at the head of a battalion and fall in battle. But he would not continue to sacrifice his army corps. The psychological collapse that preceded the fall of France had also blanketed her allies. First the Dutch, who surrendered five days into the campaign, shocked and awed by the ruthless bombing of Rotterdam. The Belgian king, Leopold III, had likewise come to the conclusion that he was facing an opponent with such superior air and armored power that it could do no more than dig in, defend, and delay the shrinking landmass of his small country. When Gamelin's order to mount a simultaneous counterattack by the armies in Belgium and the French armies between the Somme and the Seine rivers, the Belgians refused, leaving only the BEF under Lord Gort and the First Army under Biot. Yet Rommel and Guderian did not turn south and take Paris, as was feared and expected. Paris was not occupied by the Germans until June 14th, a month later. No attempt was made in the east to breach the Maginot Line by Army Group C until June 15th, only two days before an armistice was agreed ending the campaign. The Battle of France, in my opinion, was not over on May 16th, despite the remarkable German thrust through the Ardennes and across the top of France, using virtually all its armor and air force. France and Britain still outnumbered the Germans in every category, and their main mobile fighting force, three armies, were intact in Belgium, and had as yet suffered little attrition in the fighting. The key was speed. When the German panzers reached the English coast on May 20th at Abbeville, on the Somme, they had carved a 40-kilometer-wide swath, or corridor, that was for a short time virtually empty. As Freezer points out in his book, quote, 
the breathtaking aspect of this nonlinear operations management was that there was an isolated panzer wedge pushing its way to the west, behind which almost a vacuum had been formed in individual sectors. The few motorized infantry divisions were not enough by far to secure the entire territory seized by the panzers, while the infantry divisions, marching on foot, in some cases, were still several days' march away. The flanks of that corridor just about cried out for a pincer attack. If the Allies had exploited the weak moment of the attacker at the right time, then it would have been possible to make a Dunkirk for the Germans in the reverse direction. The panzers would then be cut off from their supplies and they would be encircled along the Channel coast. The window of time, the period of time in which the exposed partial vacuum of a corridor invited attack would close quickly. Several days' time for masses of infantry to fill the void was just that. Days, not a week. Even so, had the simultaneous attacks been undertaken immediately and vigorously on May 20th, when Gamelin gave the order, the German forces sandwiched between the Belgian armies and the rest of the French Northern Army along the Somme, including the Panzers, might have been crushed. thought so. Hitler and Brausich and the general staff held their breath as infantry was rushed into the gap along the Somme to occupy and strengthen the partial encirclement of the allied Belgian armies. Yet the powerful counterstroke never came for a variety of reasons. First, as we've already noted, Gamelin was sacked on May 19th by Reynaud and relieved of command on May 20th, the very day he gave the order. His replacement, Maxime Vegan, cancelled the order until he could come to grips with the pending situation in detail. He would reinstate the order two days later, but in the meantime the German corridor would be much stronger. After wasting two precious days, Vegan ordered the counteroffensive on May 23rd, then postponed it to May 24th, then May 26th or 27th, and then finally cancelled it altogether. Secondly, the French and British commanders in Belgium, Billot and Gort, had each decided themselves to mount attacks to the south to attempt to break out and rejoin the main French army, but they were not simultaneous, coordinated, or mutually supporting attacks, nor did the southern French army support these attacks by thrusting north. On May 21st, the BEF attacked around Arras, and on the 22nd, the French attacked around Cambrai. Each attack was barely beaten off by the Germans. Tragically, Billiot was then killed in a car accident, decapitating French command on the scene in Belgium. Wagon delayed appointing his successor, General Blanchard, for three whole days, during which time the crucial French First Army was essentially leaderless.
The black ink of defeatism then touched the British. Probably aware to some extent of the crumbling morale of the French high command and government that Churchill had seen a week earlier, and seeing for himself to some extent the despondent, defeated attitude of the French commanders in Belgium, Gort decided on May 23rd that the BEF should be evacuated by sea as the perimeter of the Belgian pocket in which he found himself was relentlessly shrunk by German pressure on three sides. The only open area was along the Franco-Belgian coast, and this too would start to shrink as Guderian's panzers resumed their aggressive campaign northward from Abbeville on the same day at Boulogne. That seaport fell two days later after the evacuation of about 5,000 British soldiers there. Calais was next. A terrific battle raged between May 24th and 27th that delayed the German offensive up the coast for four days. But eventually the panzers broke through first the French outer defenses and then the British positions around the docks. One by one, the channel ports were being occupied and closed to any attempt to escape. As the channel ports fell, Gort and his army moved with ever greater speed and concentration to the last major seaport open to them, Dunkirk. The miracle of Dunkirk and the successful evacuation of or- and the successful evacuation of over three hundred thousand troops, mainly British but some French, is a story in itself too long to tell here, and it would detract from the main point that the moment and opportunity for salvaging the situation between May twentieth and twenty fourth had slipped away. The Belgians surrendered on May 27th, and that army disappeared as a force of resistance in the now very small pocket. The French First Army was partially evacuated. The rest, some 50,000 men, surrendered after stubborn resistance around Lille on May 31st. At that point, there was nothing left of what had been the elite mobile striking force that had so confidently set out for the Belgian heartland on May 10th. Yet the battle was not yet over. The jumble of Germany's divisions, corps, armies, and army groups that remained in Belgium after the evacuation of the BEF and elimination of the French, Belgian, and Dutch armies in the north had to be sorted out before the campaign could be renewed again. In the meantime, Vagon prepared as best he could a defense in depth along the Somme from Sedan and the northern tip of the Maginot Line, still unbreached, to the sea, with 64 French and one British division, the so-called Vagon Line. The best of France's heavy weaponry and tanks had been lost in the north. Vagon had few reserves to patch up or react to any breakthroughs by the Germans, should they occur. The Germans rounded on the Vagon line on June 5th with 142 divisions, all their remaining mobile equipment, and complete command of the air in France. Nonetheless, resistance was unexpectedly stout and ferocious as the French gradually gave ground over the next four weeks. On June 9th, the remnants of French air cover essentially vanished. On June 10th, Paris was declared an open city, 
although French units desperately defended the approaches to the city. On June 14th, Paris was occupied. Breakthroughs occurred in the following days as the Luftwaffe ran riot in the skies, pounding and strafing uncovered French units, which were then routed by the panzers. Further and further south, the French retreated, dug in, and were penetrated again. Then Italy struck from the south. Reynaud resigned on June 16th, and Pétain, Marshal Pétain, a hero from the First World War, who became the new Prime Minister, told the French by radio the next day that he would ask the Germans for an armistice. And so the campaign ended. British Field Marshal Edmund Ironside, Chief of the Imperial General Staff in 1940, described the defeat of the Franco-British forces in 1940 as the greatest military disaster in history. And I can't disagree. And what can explain this catastrophe that doomed Europe in the world and what can explain this catastrophe that doomed Europe and the world to some of the blackest crimes of mass murder, brutality, pillage, rape, and destruction on a scale never seen before or since? It seems there were several, but not the one that most people think, an overwhelming victory by superior German forces both in number and in quality. The opposite is the truth, and should have sealed Germany's fate in 1940. Germany's armed forces were significantly smaller and its equipment of poorer quality on almost every measure to that of France alone. The first, but not necessarily foremost, factor in the improbable result was the brilliance of the German general staff system that had been in place since Clausewitz and Gneisenau created it in the wake of humiliating defeat by Napoleon in 1806. Time and again, the professionalism, imagination, discipline, training, and creativity of this peculiarly German institution had been demonstrated, and no campaign in its long and storied history equaled this one. Faced with a strategically desperate situation, Germany's generals came up with the one and probably only plan that might just save the situation, refined it to the day of the attack, and then carried it off with remarkable clarity and discipline. The second factor was the remarkably poor judgment and quality of France's supreme commander, Maurice Gamelin. If one is going to opt for a defensive strategy, as he did, then one must obey certain basic principles of defense. One is the presence of significant and mobile reserves that can rescue any part of a crumbling defense. In virtually any attack, particularly by a desperate enemy, deception and temporary overwhelming tactical superiority will be attempted by the side taking the initiative. Like Meade at Gettysburg, or Wellington at Waterloo, a defensive mode requires its own form of cunning, deployment, and ability to improvise as the attacking method of the enemy becomes clear. Instead, Gamelin was seduced by the idea of meeting the German onslaught in Belgium on someone else's soil as compared to the First World War, and held nothing back of significance that could have been used to stop the penetrating attack through the Ardennes after it had attained breakthrough. 
He was almost immediately aware of his immense mistake and aghast at its consequences when he met with Churchill and Raynaud only two days into the assault. He then allowed his own humiliation and embarrassment to permeate through the entire French high command, its field commanders, and then down to its officers. France has wrongly been criticized, in my opinion, for having been a defeatist nation and for lacking a strong, vigorous army to confront the Blitzkrieg in 1940. But there was nothing wrong with the French army. The heroism of the bleeding, dying remnants of the French First Army at Dunkirk and Lille is the stuff of legend and managed to buy enough time for the entire BEF and some of their French comrades, including Colonel Charles de Gaulle, to escape to fight again another day. The immense courage of the French army after the disaster in Belgium, fighting on stubbornly for another month against overwhelming odds, speaks for itself. What the French lacked was generalship at the very top. The third and most important element of the defeat was the psychological one that destroyed any chance of rescuing the situation between May 20th and 24th and turning the campaign around completely. France had been fooled initially in 1914 when the First World War began, having taken tremendous casualties in the opening days of the war and disbelieving the mass and volume of the German sweep through Belgium that would have flanked the French armies and enveloped them. One of France's most stoic and fearless generals of all time, Joseph Joffre, had calmly recognized his mistake and reorganized his forces in time to defeat the Germans on the Marne and save the day. France had no Joffre in May 1940. And so we come to the end of another podcast. I hope you've enjoyed this account of what I think, and I have to agree, is one of the greatest military disasters of all time. Maybe not the only one or the, the most disastrous, but um, in our time, in the 20th century, it certainly was. And um, looking back on it, we can only despair at the defeat which led to such a terrible suffering and destruction in Europe, the likes of which has never been seen since. Thank you all for listening, and I look forward to our next podcast. Please visit our website, and until then... (laughs) 